I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. So when I was just reading the news like we do on this show, and I saw that Jay Leno, allegedly a comedian, has apologized <laughs> for his history of making anti-Asian jokes. He said, and I'm quoting here, I do not consider this particular case to be another example of cancel culture, but a legitimate wrong that was done on my part. So I'm not, I gotta admit, I don't watch a lot of Jay Leno. I was more of a Letterman guy, but how long has he been making these jokes? Like what's the time frame we're talking about here? I mean, the headline of the time story is Jay Leno apologizes for years of anti-Asian jokes. And so when I went to look at the statement, it says between 2002 and 2012, Leno made at least nine documented jokes about Koreans or Chinese eating dogs or cats. <laughs> what? Come on. So I'm getting this feeling that you're not going to forgive him like he's asking. You feel oh like he should just go. He can't. Come on, let the guy go. He said he's sorry. It's fine. Oh my God. No, no, no. I mean, this is the sort of, when I hear this you don't kind consider of passive voice apologies to be good. <laughs> is that not, this is the kind of, I'm sorry that when I hear it, I just say, I'm sorry too. And like <laughs> best wishes to you and the rest of your career. This is an extremely opportunistic statement made because he was forced to, as far as I can tell, and because he has a show probably also allegedly funny coming out relatively soon. And he wants, he doesn't want forgiveness. He wants viewers. And I hope he gets none. Okay. So in our last episode, we talked about consequences, culture, and now Jay Leno is facing consequences from Sugi, if no one else. Um, I'm happy to go along with you and your boycott because I've already boycotted that guy's career. I don't really, it's not my, I don't think he's funny either. 
We also talked about the need for accountability, partly in relation to the recent murders in Georgia. In that incident, eight people were killed by a white gunman who targeted Asian massage parlors. Six of the people he killed were working class Asian women. And while mainstream outlets were parroting the shooter denying it was a hate crime, a Korean outlet reported that someone heard the shooter say he wanted to, quote, kill all Asians, unquote. And so today we're going to continue that discussion because it's not just about these horrific recent incidents, but also some very long and very American history. This is absolutely who we are, but that's still something that we can change and it's urgent that we do. I'm honored that we have two of my favorite writers here as guests to explore this topic. People whose writing about Asia and America and Asian Americans has been vital to my own understanding of that history and our future. Later in the show, we'll talk to my friend Peter Ho Davies, author most recently of the novels The Fortunes and A Lie Someone Told You About Yourself. But first, we're thrilled to be joined by Gish Jen. Gish Jen is the author of four previous novels, a story collection, and two works of nonfiction. Her honors include the Lannan Literary Award for Fiction and the Mildred and Harold Strauss Living Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. She delivered the William E. Massey Senior Lectures in American Studies at Harvard University. She's published in the best American short stories of the century, and her work appears in The New Yorker and other magazines. Her novel, The Resisters, came out in 2020, and she has a new collection of stories titled Thank You, Mr. Nixon, coming out with Knopf in February of 2022. Gish, welcome to the show. Oh, my pleasure. Gish, I'm so thrilled to have you here. You've been one of my role models as a writer since I was just starting out. And I remember meeting you now about like 20 years ago, which kind of blows my mind. Um, (laughs) And you've written about Americans and about Asian Americans in so many important ways. And I think of your work's tremendous humor, its inventiveness and structure and concept, the depth of character, and also the really expansive and porous ways you depict race, uh, which is certainly true in The Resisters, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. But first... After the recent violence in Atlanta, you wrote a New York Times op-ed about the generational differences in how Asian Americans have been viewing anti-Asian racism. So I wonder if you'd start us off by reading that piece. Oh, sure. So this is in the New York Times. It's called The Generational Split in How Asian Americans See the Atlanta Shootings. Not my title. Um, My mother, who immigrated to America in the 1940s, assumed my siblings and I would never really be accepted as American. Partly, this was because there were so few Chinese immigrants when she came. But also, it was a rough time for minorities. My parents' response to my brothers being beaten up, as he was just about every day in Yonkers, New York, was to sign him up for karate lessons. The world was a forest full of bears. There was no forest ranger. You had to defend yourself. Of all the figures who have emerged from the recent surge in anti-Asian violence, my parents would have most admired Xiao Jianxie of San Francisco. This 75-year-old, having been punched for no reason, picked up a wooden plank and hit her 39-year-old assailant so hard, he ended up on a stretcher. That woman was Han Lihai, fierce. And yet, in his account of the incident, her grandson, John Chen, emphasized how terrified she was. Over and over, people speaking on behalf of Asian Americans in recent weeks have described how fearful people are, how afraid to leave their houses. Hearing which, all I could think was, there's been a sea change. Young people seem to believe that there are four strangers around who, if they don't exactly care, can be made to care, to sympathize, to come and help. I can hear my parents' voices and see their heads shaking. You know what they are, these young people? They're Americanized. You know what happens if you show you're afraid? You have even more attacks. 
Cynics equate American individualism with an every-man-for-himself social Darwinism my parents would recognize. Idealists sees it as an every-person-counts promise of respect and dignity. No one should be told to go back where he, she came from or be accosted with kung flu comments, and certainly no one should have to fear being assaulted, much less killed, because of her race. These two outlooks have long vied in the court of public opinion. With the killing of George Floyd, however, the idealists gained a decisive victory. His death made it clear, for, for those to whom it was not clear already, that the brutality and racism placed by black Americans are an urgent concern for all Americans. Now many Asian Americans wonder, will these horrific Atlanta murders prove to be a similar turning point? Will this country own the racism and misogyny behind the gunman's targeting of Asian women? Will Americans finally see these problems as everyone's problem? And most important, will they ask, what needs to change? As Randy Park, the 23-year-old son of one of the victims, Hyun Jung Grant said, his question to the shooter's family is, what did you all teach him? Right now, we Asian Americans are proving to be a great test case of the question, is America America? It's a question at which my parents would have scoffed. Of course not, they would have said. And let me pay heartfelt tribute here to their self-respect and their resilience, which we would do well to retain. But the time has come not just to cope, but to move the world forward. Can we? Americanized as I am, American that I am, I can only hope there are forest rangers around. Thank you so much. I thought that that was such an interesting and fresh take on the shift in how we talk about this, which I hadn't really thought about in those terms, from we must defend ourselves to it's the world's turn to move forward and to change. In the piece, you ask if this will be a turning point, and I look back at earlier turning points, and I wonder what it would take to make this moment into that. What do you think? Well, of course, it's hard to say. I mean, you know, we all hope it will be a turning point. Um, and yet, as course, we know from George Floyd, I mean, you know, that was not exactly the first instance of anti-black violence, right? I mean, it took one incident after another, you know, for years for anything to happen. And, you know, in likewise, you know, we Asian Americans, you know, have been working on this problem for a long, long time. I mean, it's not like it just, this just cropped up now. Um, I, I think that, you know, I mean, it, it goes back to, you know, if you think about the race riots of like 1871, I mean, in L.A., you know, 19 people were, were massacred then, you know, in L.A. Chinatown. That was 10% of the Chinese population in L.A. at the time. Uh, the people were so malicious, they not only shot these 19 people, they shot them and then hanged them. You know, it wasn't enough to shoot them. And, of course, all the perpetrators got off. So, you know, this is like an old, old problem in America. Um, and, um, but I, I think that in terms of, you know, what we can do, um, I, I think that, of course, at least one piece of the puzzle that is kind of ours to handle, um, and that's to do something about the representation, right? And, you know, we, you know, representation, what are the issues? What are we writing about? What are we bringing to the audience's attention? Um, again, this is not, you know, this is not an effort that started today, you know? I mean, so um, if we look at, at the problem with these Atlanta um, massage workers, um, you know, the whole problem of their having 
you know, been hypersexualized. I mean, there's been a lot of ink spilled on this, you know, the hypersexualizing of, of Asian women. Um, the fact of the matter is that, you know, we had Miss Saigon and we had Madame Butterfly, but we also had people writing against that for, I mean, for a long time. So David Henry Huang wrote M. Butterfly in 1988, in which he just deconstructed the very myth, you know, the very stereotype that unfortunately is still with us. But it's just goes to show that, you know, we, we writers, we do have responsibility. And, and I will say that people have been taking this responsibility for a long time. But obviously, just as we see with the, with the black Americans, you know, it, it, it is going to take a long time. I mean, you know, they've had, they've had novels like Passing, if you get back, you know, um, Nella Larson's novel. I mean, that was, you know, the 1930s, you know. <laughs> now that's being made into a Netflix, you know, series, finally. Speaking of representation, I was thinking about what my son gets taught in school, for instance, right? And learning about, so he gets a lot of information about the black civil rights movement, but I don't think he gets taught about any of the things that you're talking about, right? I don't think that the Asian experience in America and particularly just, you know, confronting racism is not memorialized or discussed in official quarters like schools um, in the same way that the civil rights experience was for black Americans. You know, you're absolutely right. Now, to be fair, I will say that, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, the, 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 the problem with the African-Americans is, you know, can be dated to the, you know, the very first moments of American history. You know, I mean, I am very concerned. I mean, when you see things like grannies being slammed on the street, they're standing there and some guy feels like he can just go over and hit this woman, uh, it's not okay, period, right? Um, but it is true that from a historical point of view that, you know, I don't think that the problems with the Asians are as foundational to America as the problems with the African-Americans. It's just not, you know, the numbers are much smaller. That said, I do think that much more attention needs to be paid to it. In some ways, you know, the great a gift of America is that we have social mobility. But the downside of that is that we have social anxiety. We have tremendous, tremendous status anxiety. It, it's, you know, everyone is concerned about their status all the time. And of course, what, you know, historically, what people have done when they feel insecure is they look for another, go, another group to be superior to, right? And that group, you know, one of the big groups to which people, you know, like certain people feel that they can always kind of put down and safely be above has been, you know, African-Americans. But another group has been the Asian-Americans and especially Asian-American women. You know, so if you think about like who is an authority, who's an authority figure, who could you readily accept as a boss? And I can tell you that most people, you know, most people, meaning many white Americans, you know, would be very disconcerted to say have a five foot Asian American woman sort of appear as their new boss. I can tell you a lot of that, do you know what I mean? And, and she's going to face, you know, she's going to face a, a million times more problems than a white male in, her, in the same situation. And, you know, and, that's, and, that, and, and, that, and that has got to change. I mean, that has got to change. I mean, I, I, I think that, um, yeah, I mean, I, and I think that in terms of how it's going to change, I mean, I think we need representations of Asian Americans and the, and the victimhood and all that people have put up with. But we need the strong figures, too. That's one of the reasons I, I wrote The Resistors. We need the strong figures, too. It's interesting, since I wrote my um, op-ed, many, many people have written to me, but especially people who have actually been figures of authority, they've they actually wielded authority, their take is, 
crying victim will get you nowhere. And I know, I know why they say that. I know why they say that. You know, it's interesting. I'm not, you know, the tennis, we have, Suki and I have a, a mutual friend, Eileen Pollock, who's a very good tennis player. I'm nowhere near the tennis player she was, is, and I never will be. Um, but I did play on a tennis ladder very briefly, but long enough to understand that, you know, like in some ways that this is how America works. Do you know what I mean? There's like a tennis ladder. People are very anxious to move up the ladder. And when they, they don't bother the people who are below them. Do you know what I mean? But if they see somebody three rungs up, who they think is vulnerable, they will challenge. And I and I talked to somebody who's like a you know on a board of a million things, an Asian American woman, and you know, she's like, basically she challenges, she 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 faces ten times more you know more challenges than anybody else in the room. Challenge, 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 challenge on every level. And what's that about? They think they can take her out, right? They think they can take her out, and they think that she's vulnerable, right? And, and, and they have something to gain by that. And what you can sort of see, that one of the things I worry about with the victimhood narrative, without counteracting narratives of strength, is that people will get the idea. It will work with human resources, because, you know, HR will be in there. You know, you say you're a victim, they'll go in there and protect you. But as soon as you rise to a certain level, you're going to find that the, actually the victimhood narrative is actually going to backfire. You know what I mean? That it's basically going to be a target on your back and it's going to make the situation actually worse. So, you know, it's complicated. But anyway, as writers, you know, it's our job to kind of claim some territory, take up some space. And you're right, you know, get, get these stories into the schools. Um, but like I say, it's, 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 it's a mix of stories. It's not just like, you know what I mean? Microaggression, microaggression. I mean, it's true. I'm not saying that those things aren't going on. But it's also true that, you know what I mean, without also projecting our strength, I think we will find ourselves with no progress forward. Your comments remind me of Senator Tammy Duckworth, who's a politician that I followed for a long time. But it may, you know, I was interested in her because I wrote about the war in my last novel and I was a reporter in Iraq. Um, and, you know, so she's someone who projects strength, but ha has to go to such extremes. She lo loses both her legs. She's a war veteran. And still, right, that, that's what it would take. That's what it takes really for an Asian American politician to have authority is like to these wrap themselves in all of these uh, American cliches in a way, but also genuine sacrifice for the country. Right. And even then she's uh, often questioned, I think. Yeah, of course she's questioned. I mean, you're absolutely right. So an Asian American woman in that position, I, I, it's, you know, it's just like Gwen in my novel. I mean, you know, like, you know what I mean? It's, it's, the challenge is, is 10 times larger than it is for, for, you know, a white man in that position, you know, without any question. And yes, you have to show your heroism. You can never, you can never flinch. Do you know what I mean? You can never flinch. You can never show any weakness, right? But in terms of like what we can do, you know, one way we, we writers, we can't do anything. We're like so useless, you know, except for in kind of a general kind of way. And, and I think that that's one thing that we can do is we can kind of change the climate of expectation, you know, and that's what I think that we should be trying to do. Um, I, you know, I recently, I actually just yesterday, I, I interviewed Margaret Atwood and she was talking about what it was like to be a woman at Harvard, you know, in the 60s and, you know, how when she took her, you know, orals, her, she was a graduate student. The sugar oil exams, you know, it's just like they didn't really test her because basically they didn't really expect that she would ever go on to be anything. So like, they, 
she didn't have to pass a real oral exam because she was never going to be a threat. She was never going to be, she wasn't going to be up for a job. Are you kidding? She's a woman, you know? Um, but I think that you can change that, you know, that climate of expectation. I would say my, my, my experience at Radcliffe was exactly the opposite. You know, so there she was, you know, as, as a grad student, you know, I mean, we were there under some somewhat different circumstances, but, you know, the first time I went to the Radcliffe Institute, which is 86, 87, so that's two decades later, um, first time we went around the, uh, you know, the circle to introduce ourselves, you know, someone said, you know, what are you? I mean, I was the youngest bunting fellow, and I said I was a would-be writer, and they said, all oh, these women jumped on me, it's like, you can't say, never say that again, you're a writer. The first time I ever said I was a writer was because I was in this climate of expectation where you weren't supposed to say it would be a writer, you're supposed to say a writer. And you know what happened in that climate of expectation? That was on Monday. And by Friday, I had been a person who barely thought, I, 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 didn't, I didn't know what I was doing at this institute. I couldn't believe I'd gotten this fellowship. You know, in fact, in applying, I had, um, you know, it's funny, I'd gotten to the stage where they were looking for recommendations, and they had said my second recommendation hadn't come in, and I hadn't done anything about it. I just so happens I ran into somebody else who sort of said, what? They asked you for second recommendation, she didn't do anything? She actually walked up, this is Martha Collins, the poet, she walked up to the back of office and said, I'm Gish Jen's second recommender. So I wouldn't have done anything because obviously I wasn't going to get a funding. You know what I mean? I mean, but 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 I'm saying on Monday I was in this climate of expectation. By Friday I had written, it's an American story, and I thought I'm going to write a novel. And the typical American was born on Friday. I had the word novel had never crossed my mind, but in this climate of expectation, suddenly there it was. And not only did I write a novel. I wrote a novel, and this is how long this struggle has been going on, that claimed full Americanness for Asian Americans. First line, it's, it's an American story, which I cannot tell you how much flack I got for that. <laughs> I mean, the amount of flack. What do you mean it's an American story? How could an Asian American call her novel typical American? I, 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 I cannot tell you how much. You know, but on the other hand, I can also tell you that things have moved forward. And I think we need to move it forward, and I think that we can. But like I say, these, these are the things that are within the, the control of us writers, is to write the narratives and to control the climate. So when we're talking about this climate of expectations and changing how we think about ourselves and how we think about others, you know, I want to go back to the in your in your Times essay, there's this forest ranger metaphor, which is really interesting. And you you chose a forest ranger, you didn't choose the police. Um, and there's been all this criticism of of Jay Barker from the Cherokee County Police Department, who said of that Atlanta shooter, you know, he had a bad day, which has been much quoted. Um, I guess it was a really bad day for him. And this is what he did, end quote. And, and so there's been all this conversation, much of it driven by Black Lives Matter and aligned movements about defunding the police. Um, what do you think about the Asian American community's relationship with the police? How do we view the police and how has that changed over time? Is that something in which writers have any agency to intervene? You know, I, you know, I would say, Suki, you know, first of all, I cannot, you know how complicated the Asian American community is. And I mean, it's just like, how can anybody even say what the, Asian, the reaction of the Asian American community is? The Asian American community ranges from far left to far right. And everything in between, I don't think you can say the Asian American community has any, any um, reaction. I mean, you can't generalize. Um, that's the first thing. And the second thing I will say is that, you know, 
I, do, I don't think that as, you know, as a writer, you know, it's funny, I, I have struggled from day one with the, you know, the question of whether I, could, I should be a representative voice, do you know what I mean? And, um, or I will say a representative victim. I mean, I see that that came up really early too, so we're talking about the late 1980s, you know? I mean, I made a very concerted decision that I would not be a professional victim, that I would be a writer, I wanted to be a writer, and that I would not be representative. You know what I mean? I'm not a spokesperson for me. I am a writer. I don't, I don't think that I know what the, the reaction is. And I don't think, I, and as a writer, I, I, don't think, I don't think it's for me to answer. I think it's our job, and I, I think you would probably agree with this, Suki. I mean, I, it's our job to kind of represent people in a, in a, in a much more complicated way than the, the press would ever ask us to represent them. And there's one thing about all this discussion, and it is incredibly important, and I, you know, I'm glad it's going on, but it is very flattening. You know? So the good news is that you can talk about you know, this microaggression and that microaggression, and this happened, you know, and, and look, the stories are endless. I mean, they are endless. And it's important to bring that to the public. But it's our job as a writer to, 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 to kind of represent these people in a level, to a level of complexity that you know, journalists have not thought to ask about. Do you know what I mean? So, so that their stories are, you know, as you know, people have gone, have, have, have gone, have undertaken a very, very, very um, complex cultural journey. Do you know what I mean? And it's our job to sort of, to represent like, what is it? Like, what is it they actually think about beyond the conversation about, you know, about race and gender? Which is not to say that stuff ever goes away. It's always there. It's always there. But it's so far from the complete story. Do you know what I mean? So it's our job. And like I say, there, there, are, there are parts of the story that people, they, you know, your average journalist would just never even think to, to ask. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't, it doesn't cross their minds. And it's our job to tell them. It's there whether they ask us about it or not. What kind of things do you, do you think the press should be asking or talking about that they're not talking about right now? Well, I do think that one of the, you know, one of the big issues behind the whole invisibility of the Asian American community, and, you know, and this is, you know, like, you could see this in the Atlanta shootings in the sense that how long it took to even figure out who these women were, much less what their stories were. I mean, the Korean community just, right? There's a lot of stuff in the Korean press, but the American press had a lot of trouble going in. And I think that their complete um, inability to understand what was going on, I, they do not understand collectivism, you know? They really don't. They really don't. They real, and they don't really realize they don't understand, right? They don't understand it. They don't, you know what I mean? They sort of see it. They see these things happening. They don't have a name for them. And also, by the way, I think that, you know, talk about white privilege or whatever, they do not, they basically think that the American self, not only do they think it's universal, even though actually very, very, very tiny percentage of, of the world has this self. But Americans think it's universal. And they think also, by the way, that everybody is evolving to become them <laughs> and would want to become them. And to be fully human is to be them, obviously. And I, I, I think, that, yeah, I, I, would like the, I would like to see the press take that up because that is actually the driver of huge problems. And, um, and, and I think in this case, they can't, you know, they can't understand these women. They can't understand you know, what they're doing there. 
I mean, look, I mean, to me, I'm a very big proponent of the hybrid self. I mean, I'm not, you know, I don't think, you know, we, all, we have a very individualistic side in, in, in America. There's so many good things about that. And, you know, we would never want to give those things up. But it is also true that, you know, look at the handling of the pandemic, you know, Taiwan, it was like, no problem, right? Here, you know, here we have half a million people died. I mean, it's just like, it's totally unnecessary. And in other, other societies, we're very, very, very much more able to deal with something like this. And, um, and, that's, and that's not the only way in which, in which they are, um, we have a lot to learn. So I guess, yeah, I would, I would love to see the press pay a little more attention and go in with a little more humility and try to under, really try to understand kind of what's under the hood. There's a really interesting Columbia Journalism Review article about the ways that ethnic Korean outlets covered the shootings and how they got so much better information much more quickly. There's been some interesting discussion about, you know, um, I mean, I was watching people people hunting for Korean-speaking freelancers to cover this. I'm like, why are those people not on staff? I was so mad. Um, you know, why have you not prioritized making your newsrooms uh people able to cover the actual country that we live in. And I think one of the other interesting things behind what you're saying, you're talking about collectivism and individualism. And I think one of the things that I admire so much about your work is the way that right, you take a phrase like typical American, you're taking a stereotype and you're dismantling it, um, which is, I think, one of the things that from a craft point of view, like I'm interested in the ways that's represented in fiction. I think also when you're talking about collectivism and individualism and the ways that Americans are unaware of the self, it also seems to me like Americans are not good readers of political manipulation, which has to do with that conception of individualism. So, right, for example, like the Atlanta shootings has to do have to do with, um, right, like a very specific kind of anti-Asian racism that predates Trump. And then on the other hand, around the country, we have these other attacks, which are very obviously connected, despite, you know, the protestations of various useless individuals who are interested in denialism, right? It's very obviously connected to Trump's xenophobic coronavirus rhetoric, you know, his Trump administration officials saying Kung flu, um, imported virus from China, et cetera, et cetera. And Americans are so bad at reading that this is manipulation and that it's a way to foment violence. So I don't know. I'm interested in a kind of writing that makes people, I'm interested in putting pressure on the self, but I'm also curious about putting pressure on readers to be better, smarter readers? Because so much of the time, I feel like what I want is someone to read me more intelligently, um, which sounds narcissistic, and maybe it is. Um, and like, oh, wow, an Asian American woman's going to be a narcissist. It's fine. It's happening right here, right now on the show. Um, <laughs> like, I don't apologize. But I just think... You're not, not a narcissist, <laughs> I just think, like, why can't we we read more intelligently? That's some of the problem, right? It's bad reading. And so, and it's it has made us unable to protect ourselves um, from things like Trump turning us into, like, vicious bullies and and people who turn on each other. And so I'm curious about, like, what you think about why Americans are so bad at reading this kind of manipulation. Well, I think that I do think that you know, if you look at the, you know the sort of the um, the, the cultural um, psych psychological studies, you know about about how uh, the individualist versus the collectivist um, self focuses. So, you if you have a table in the room, it's like it's it's like the the individuals. I mean, this is the, a gross you know this is a gross simplification, right? The individualist will will focus on the table. And the collectivists will focus on the room. 
you know? So, you know, collectivism is very associated with things like agrarian societies and everything. Of course, they're always looking at the sky, you know? They're not looking at the cells, you know? They're looking at the sky. And so there's, there's kind of attention paid to, you know, to influences coming in, to the weather, to what's outside the self. And there's an awareness that, you know what I mean? Like what's outside the self is going to affect you, right? And so it's just where their focus is. Whereas, you know, Americans seem to think that, you know, the, 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 you know, the outside is kind of static in some way and all the truth that you have to pay, pay attention to is within. And that is, you know, that, that I think that's what you're saying is like basically they're not paying attention to the context and they, they kind of, um, they underestimate the context. Do you know what I mean? So, and they think that all their ideas are their ideas, you know? <laughs> they think they freely, they freely adopted these ideas. They don't think of them as having, been, as, as having come to them from some place. You know, and you know, you can, you can, you can run studies. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a lion in the savannah, you know, and, and the individualistic self will focus on that lion and try to understand the lion, the lion's motivation, you know, and, you know, I should, you know, sometimes I used to give talks on this and, you know, I, I can show this lion and the savannah and then they're so focused on the lion that you can put a UFO, and I mean a big UFO, <laughs> in the sky <laughs> and they, they, they don't see it. So half the audience starts laughing. And that's how you know, right? That is kind of basically everybody with a collective aside immediately starts laughing. And people who are very individualistic miss the UFO. <laughs> they literally, truly don't see it. Well, the description of that kind of blindness reminds me of the resistors. And maybe this is a good time to sort of shift to talking about that book, because there is a line in that you have the, these two classes of people, the netted, who are the sort of upper upper class and the surplus. And there's a line in the book that says the very definition of the netted is people who see nothing. I mean, that, that privilege is an ability to ignore, right? Isn't that kind of what you're talking about here? You are absolutely correct. Yes. And, and I do think, you know, and privilege is a kind of blindness, right? I mean, not only they blind to their own privilege, you know, it's blinding altogether. Um, and, you know, in a general kind of way, too, I will say that, you know, the kind of the richer people become, and this is very well studied, uh, the more oblivious, you know, the more convinced they are that they got to where they are from, you know, from something inside them. I mean, they're more individualistic, you know. So kind of, if there's some kind of scale with like, well, what contributed to the situation, you or the situation, the more individual, the richer you are, the more individualistic you become, and the more convinced you are that it was you, <laughs> you know. And the more convinced you are, by the way, that every that the trouble with everybody else was them too. You know what I mean? It's just like, you know, it wasn't that they ha you know, they happened to be living, you know, on top of a gold mine. It's just that, no, 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 no. It was, you know, I was a superior being and I have a superior self. I mean, the problem with Jay Barker, the guy in Atlanta who, who it was later found out, had posted on Facebook, you know, endorsing shirts that called COVID imported virus from China, spelled, not only that is just outright racist, but it means that he doesn't consider these women who were killed in Atlanta as part of his constituency. They aren't seen as a person he's supposed to protect. Absolutely. Who would have that shirt. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, and, and, and I guess that, you know, what you're, what you're saying is absolutely right. I mean, one of the problems with this kind of cultural superiority is that people with another self are not completely human. In other words, like humanity is synonymous with having the same self that you have, you know? And, you know, you know, and yeah, so that, that, that's pretty problematic. I mean, especially in a police chief, you know, and, and other figures of authority. Um, 
I will say too, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to generalize, but to, if I were to generalize, you know, it's not just Asians who tend to have a more collectivistic side. And I do think it's just a side. I mean, I think that most people are pretty hybrid, but it is women. You know what I mean? Women tend to have a more collectivistic side. And you know what I mean? So whenever you're in a meeting and some guy says like, how did the women know that? <laughs> or when they sort of say, you know, really need a woman on this board because she picks up all the stuff, you know? And the answer is the woman does pick up all the stuff and she does have another perspective. And she does see things that these very highly individualistic, often men, although it's not always men, but these, she does actually, she's looking at the world with a different pair of glasses. It's so interesting to hear you say all of these things about politics and the collective and the individual and to think about the resistors, which uses baseball very much as the vehicle for this political story. Um, and I wonder if you could read to us from the resistors. Yeah, okay. Just a very, very, very short section. Um, as you guys know, this, this book involves, is about, um, it's about a dystopian world in which, you know, it's, it's an apartheid-like world. It's set in the future. It's, you know, every nightmare has, has come to pass. <laughs> we have, you know, environmental disaster. Um, we have technological problems, um, to put it mildly. Um, in the middle of all of this, there is this girl, Gwen, who's born with a golden arm. You know, so she's, she's quite a pitcher. Anyway, in the section that I'm going to read, she's, you know, she is actually, lo and behold, ended up kind of in the Olympics. And, um, and she's talking about how afraid her teammates are of the China-Russia team. So China and Russia have gotten together. And they're afraid of them partly because they're, they've been genetically um, engineered. And so now they're all, they're all switch hitters <laughs> to their chagrin. But anyway, she's talking about her teammates. And she says, perhaps all this was fear, pure and simple, on the part of Gwen's teammates. But feeding their obsession, of course, was the sense that baseball was more than a sport, that it was a crown jewel. There were people who said it wasn't even invented in America. There were people who pointed out it was mentioned by Jane Austen long before it was ever mentioned here. But if baseball took on a hallowed meaning, it took on that meaning in our American dreams. For was this not the level playing field we envisioned? The field on which people could show what they were made of? And didn't we Americans believe above all that everyone should have a real chance at that? Didn't we believe that with the good of the team at heart, something in us, might just hit a ball off our shoe tops and send it sailing clear out of the park. If Gwen's teammates were playing Chinmusha for something, I thought, it was for this. For a chance to show, my mother would have said, that even if we all return to the dirt and the wind and the rain like the plants and the animals, we had a bigness in us, something beyond algorithms, and beyond upgrades, something we were proud to call human, or so it seemed to me. And so you can sort of see, yes, you know, America, democracy, those are very much the concerns of my book. Um, you know, the level playing field. Um, will you know what will happen to that in the field in the future? I mean, baseball has you know has been observed to be the great American sport from the beginning. You know, what women said it had the snap go fling of the American atmosphere. 
Um, I will say, though, too, that, you know, American also has the, you know, we were just, I was just sort of saying that, you know, this thing about competition. If you look at the, the relationship of the, you know, the batter and the pitcher, you know, it's one against the other. I can tell you that in, in this most American of sports that, you know, is very much about democracy and so on, but the very heart of it, there is this duel and no one shows fear. No one shows fear. No one says, I'm a victim. No, they just go, the object is to intimidate the shit out of the, other, <laughs> out of the opponent <laughs> and, and to psych them out any way you can. And you got to throw to the inside, you know what I mean, so that they think they're going to get killed, you do it. <laughs> and that's, that's, American. that's American too, you know what I mean? So it's both the idealism and the realism, I think. So when did you be, when and how did you become a baseball fan? You know, the funny thing is I'm not really that much of, of a fan, but I will say my family are rabid fans. And, um, and that's, a, that's a very immigrant story. I mean, you know, my parents, as you know, are Chinese immigrants. And um, like many immigrants, they came to America. One of the first ways that they kind of performed being American was to go to a ball game. Uh, learned who to root for, you know, of course, you know, for, it's an incredible introduction to America because, I mean, all these ideas, the level playing field, everybody gets a turn at bat. Um, the idea that there's a, you know, that there's a game that's set up to bring out the best in us, do you know what I mean? That's very careful to count, with rules that everybody agrees on. Let's start there. Like, the rules, everybody has to agree on the rules, you know? I mean, that, you know, if you're coming from China, that's like a very strange idea. Anyway, you learn all about, you know, about America this way. And, um, and, and then many of them go on to be big baseball fans. It's the first thing they learn about America. They become very attached to it. Um, that was true of my mother. Uh, my mother was the most rabid Yankees fan you could possibly oh, no. imagine. I hate oh, the Yankees. I know, I know. There was, a, there was, I know. We had a lot of trouble <laughs> there. That was a, but I tell you, at one point, um, you know, she did pass away recently. But before that, she was a terrible, you know, it was a terrible moment where she was very, very sick and, um, she was, you know, she was unconscious and we're all racing down to her bedside. We all thought that she was going to die. And so she's lying there. She's non-responsive. And my, you know, my brother, who's alone with my mother, is trying to get her to respond. You know, he leans over her and he says to her, he says, he says, Mom, he said, the Red Sox are eating our lunch. Just, the Yankees are in a slump. And just like that, my mother, who'd been totally non-responsive for days, bat, 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 her eyes open up, and without missing a beat, she says, that Aaron Boone should be fired. <laughs> Aaron Boone is the manager <laughs> of the Yankees. <laughs> I mean, and I, you know, I shouldn't say, I shouldn't laugh. My mother actually died of COVID, you know, last year. and, and I, I remember sorry. seeing that. And I want to just tell you, yeah. I, I mean, we're, we're speaking in person for the first time, but we're friends on Facebook. And so I was very oh. sorry. I remember you posting about I it. I remember that sad. too. Oh. Yeah, I'm sorry. Oh, for well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And we, you know, I don't know if I posted this on Facebook. I don't think I did. We did bury her with a Yankees cap. <laughs> I mean, that was, that was my mother. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we really appreciated you coming in to talk. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much, Gish. And listeners, don't forget to pick up Gish Jen's brilliant novel, The Resisters, out now, and look for Goodnight, Mr. Nixon, coming in 2022.
Now we're thrilled to welcome Peter Ho Davies. Peter Ho Davies' latest book is A Lie Someone Told You About Yourself. His previous novel, The Fortunes, won the Annisfield Wolf Award and the Chautauqua Prize, and his first novel, The Welsh Girl, was long listed for the Booker Prize. He has published two acclaimed short story collections, The Ugliest House in the World and Equal Love, and has been anthologized in Best American Short Stories. In 2003, Granta named him among its Best of Young British Novelists. Born in Britain to Welsh and Chinese parents, he teaches in the MFA program at the University of Michigan. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. It's a special treat for me to have you here since we're former colleagues. Um, I really appreciate your making the time. Earlier in the episode, we talked to Gish Jen about her New York Times op-ed on changing views of anti-Asian racism and violence in the U.S. And The Fortunes is about being Chinese in America and has four sections. And one of those four sections is about the 1982 murder of Vincent Chin. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that incident and also read from that section for us. Sure. Vincent Chin was a 20-something Chinese-American living in Detroit in 1982 who was mistaken for Japanese by a couple of white assailants who were angry about the effects of Japanese imports on the U.S. auto business at the time. The altercation began in a strip club where Vincent and a handful of his friends, another Asian-American and two white friends, were celebrating his bachelor party. And it continued outside where the attackers chased off Vincent and his other Asian-American friend with a baseball bat. For about 30 minutes, they drove around looking for them before catching up to them and beating Vincent to death in a parking lot of a McDonald's. It's interesting. I was reading our mutual friend Beth's essay about Cobra Kai, in which she actually briefly mentions this, and I didn't realize the person who attacked Vincent, Vincent Chin actually never even paid the fine. Oh, I, yeah, I didn't realize that. There was a civil suit. You know, there were a number of suits. There was a civil rights case eventually, um, and then eventually even a civil suit. But I think even the findings in that haven't been paid. Um, so there's been this long-standing sense in which the family have never been able to get in any kind of justice or restitution. Yeah, I think it seems to me such a long aftermath. I was reading an interview with... Um, one of the with the older assailant um, on the Asian American Legal Defense Fund website last night I was sort of reading up on this case and to listen to that voice and realize that the the long tail of this incident was really remarkable. Um, I wonder if you would read for us from that. There's a little bit of a section in here about kind of the coming together of the movements, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. And I should say the the section in the novel is told from the point of view of um, uh, Vincent's Asian-American friend who was with him on the night, a witness to the assault. Um, uh, although in the book, that character is very much a sort of fictional imagination. In certain ways, I'm projecting myself into that space of the witness. But he was there at many of the, um, the organizing movements that came after this point, of course, testified at the various trials. They call themselves the ACJ, American Citizens for Justice, no mention of Chinese or Asian in the name, and insisted the placards that marches be in English, which may explain the painful plaintive pun of chin up for justice on one popular sign. But they're the ones, journalists, lawyers, church leaders and local businessmen who helped Lily, that's Vincent's mother, get the case reopened. And they're coming together, Chinese and Japanese, those old enemies as well as Korean, Vietnamese, Filipino, marked the start of a pan-Asian political movement. And me, along with the rest, attending meetings, giving interviews, marching beneath a newly lettered sign. You could say it's when we became Asian American. Two drunk white guys couldn't tell us apart and we realised we were more alike than we'd thought. The first meeting was held in the Golden Star, the restaurant where Vincent had worked. Everyone sitting around the freshly laid tables, vinyl tablecloths and melamine rice bowls, trying not to disturb the settings, looking less angry or sad in that context than hungry. 
It reminded me of his funeral the previous summer, only these weren't all the same people who'd come then. I didn't know many of them, and many of them didn't know Vincent, and yet they spoke of that night as if they had been there, as if they'd been attacked. In a way, I guess they felt they had, if not by Evans, then by the verdict. Part of me wanted to say something. Didn't they know who I was? But then it came to me that all their talk of a heinous assault, a brutal slaying, wasn't the way you'd talk about it if you were there. That wasn't how I remembered it. That was how they imagined it. They weren't talking as if they'd been there, but as if they wished they had been. What would they have done if they had been, I wondered. And I held my peace. It reminded me of Vincent, the way he told me about his father's mugging. They were spoiling for a fight, too. Back in the kitchen, the cooks were prepping dishes for later, hot oil singing in the steel woks. I didn't say anything in the end, but Lily was there, and she spoke last, halting but firm. She wanted justice for Vincent, and we applauded until our hands stung. But a lot of the people in that room also wanted justice for themselves. Me too, I suppose. I had run, but maybe there was still something I could do. Sometimes now, when people tell the story, it's a triumph. Something good, something important coming from tragedy. The death of a man, the birth of a movement. I guess that's what Vincent was martyred for, even if he didn't know it. Thank you. I remember um, you came to Minnesota and read from this section before the book came out, and the room was just totally stunned silent. Um, and back in the 80s, following the death of Vincent Chin, we saw the rise of Asian American civil rights organizations like American Civilians for Justice. And today we have senators like Tammy Duckworth and Maisie Hirono calling for deeper investigation into other Asian American hate crimes that might be left underreported, as well as calling for more diversity in the Biden administration, specifically cabinet appointments. Uh, so what are the chances that Atlanta and the other attacks going on around the country serve as a similar flashpoint for Asian American protest and organizing? It's a good question. I, you know, I'm not sure that I... It's hard to handicap those chances, of course. Um, I mean, I, I do find myself feeling some cause for optimism. Um, you know, one of the things that that section about Vincent speaks to is that it took a year or so to really organize um, American Citizens for Justice coming out of that space. And yet I feel like at this particular moment, there are a number of um, Asian American lobbying and political groups that are already speaking powerfully to these spaces. And we have more representatives doing that work as well for us as well. So I'm thinking of things like Asian Americans Advancing Justice, the Stop APA, AAPI hate groups um, who are thinking into these spaces. Um, and that does seem, I think, encouraging to me um, within the writing community, of course, there are uh, mobilized groups of Asian Americans, you know, not just in terms of thinking about politics, but also just thinking about representation through Asian American Writers Workshop or the Kundiman Writing Workshops as well. Um, so these things all seem encouraging to me. Um, and yet, um, there are probably also some reasons for pessimism. I mean, we're talking about gun violence again here, and if the country can't move on gun violence when the victims of it are school rooms of children, we wonder about how much they can move on an issue like this, I suppose, in some ways as well. Um, in regard to Vincent, when I'm thinking into the history of that case, you know, in 82, part of the pressures there that surrounded um, the attack on Vincent was the economic pressure on the American car industry from Japanese imports. And so this was in Detroit. The two men who attacked him were men who'd worked in or were continuing to work in the car industry. The line sort of famously that comes up from them is if, um, if it wasn't for you little motherfuckers like you, we would still be in jobs, right? Although actually one of them was actually still working for Chrysler. Um, so one of the attackers was a foreman at Chrysler. The other had worked for Chrysler. 
10 years after this attack in 1992, Lee Iacocca, who was the CEO of Chrysler, had been the CEO of Chrysler at the time of the attack, was still talking about Japanese imports, and he used the language, um, the ex- ex- exact quote was, the Japanese are beating our brains in, uh, in an economic way. It's amazing to me to think about how that rhetoric can be distorted and perverted um, in uh, 10 years after this attack, which Lee Iacocca must have been very well aware of in that period. So there are moments, even when we think about the the organization that came out of Vincent's death, when it's still possible to imagine great pessimism about the future along the way as well. Um, maybe the other thing that I would say is, for all that we need to think about organizing, for all that greater diversity and representation, these things are incredibly valuable, um, for greater attention to legislation, uh, as folks in Congress are thinking about, seem incredibly useful as well to me. There's also a way in which it feels as though we're trying to address a problem in the society, and most of that address is coming from the people who are in the receiving end of that problem, the victims of that problem. Um, you know, those are symptoms. We might think about the cure. We might wonder why it is that uh, people like the young man in Atlanta and people like those who are abusing Asian Americans in the streets and attacking them, why they are, I would say so hateful, but actually I'm going to suggest why they are so fearful. That feels like a problem for a larger part of the society to think into in various ways. And maybe it's all of our problems in those regards. Well, I think leaders and media play a giant role in this. And I think it's rhetoric, you know, It's been made, the point's been made many times, but, you know, the Trump administration rhetoric on othering people and particular peoples and on immigration generally is the cause, period, to me. I mean, and we had an incident, similar incident happened here in, I live in Kansas City and in Olathe, which is a nearby city, there was an Indian citizen who was was in a bar and and this guy, Adam Purrington, got kicked out of the bar because he was abusing this guy and telling him to get out of his country and he came back with a gun and shot the guy. Now, fortunately, this man has been sentenced to life in prison, uh, and quite happily, it was by the Trump administration's Justice Department, so I appreciate that. But the Justice Department is not taking responsibility for the fact that I think that their president at that time's rhetoric, this happened in 2017, was causing that. Yeah, and that's one of the great echoes, I think, with with the Vincent Shin case. We go back to 82. I mean, I think the, the case of Vincent Shin sort of feels now as though it's a kind of landmark case. Um, in the history of Asian American uh, politics. But I think partly because of that landmarking, it's easy to think of it as just a um, a particular anomalous, grotesque moment. Um, but of course, it also comes out of a space of, um, well, two spaces actually that I think resonate with our current moment. Uh, one is a space of economic anxiety. Well, we might think of um, the current uh, spate of attacks as being driven, I suppose, by... Um, some of the ways we think about the pandemic and some of the rhetoric associated with that. Um, the pandemic itself, of course, has economic um, repercussions. And I would argue that um, the othering of China and the Chinese feels like it goes back further than that and does come out of a deep economic anxiety. I think yeah. about, um, you know, there's a line of Donald Trump's that he offered up in 2011 when he was... Um, flirting with a run initially. He didn't actually run um, in 2012, but he was thinking into that space where he was asked, I think, in Vegas about um, 
uh, how he would deal with Chinese imports. And his language was to say, we're going to slap a tariff on this. But the way he said it um, was to say, we're going to, listen, you motherfuckers, we're going to slap a tariff on your goods. And of course, that word, that uh, that expletive, is, um, is one that plays a significant part in the struggle and the fight that initiated Vincent's uh, a, a assault and attack. And so it, that othering and the... Um, the violence of that language feels like it does feed into these territories along the way. And it's not just polit- politicians. Now, I, I remember I remember the, the anti-Japanese panic of the of the 80s and, and early 90s when people in America, white people, thought that Japan was going to become economically superior to the United States, which seems now like a silly idea because they had a terrible couple of decades. But it was real, you know? And so everything that's happening now looks exactly like that in regards to China. Now, China has its own problems. And we've done episodes on those. I'm not saying it's a perfect country, but I'm saying the way that America is reacting to China right now is very similar to the way that America reacted to Japan's rise and dominance in that period of time. Specifically, I went back and watched the, Michael, the, the movie Rising Sun from 1993 with Sean Connery and Wesley Snipes. It was the most insane racist movie I have ever seen in my life. And I remember watching it at the time and thinking that what is going on here? I don't know if you're familiar with that film or not, but uh, I think I saw it when, when it came out approximately. Oh I haven't God. seen it since. I was um, betting that you had seen this. <laughs> I, to- I told Whit you had a large mental film vocabulary. <laughs> I mean, it does every possible cliche you could possibly do. It starts with this gong, right? You know, it's it, it has a guy singing karaoke, uh, you know, a Japanese guy singing karaoke to a white woman who like gets mad and leaves. He yells at her instructs her to get in the car they drive off they should then they show a legend like los angeles 9 a.m whatever date and you hear japanese voices talking and they pan to a, a building that's in the background a high skyscraper and it's these japanese guys are wanting to buy an american company and they bug the room and they're listening to what the dumb americans are saying and they have all this power and then the next scene cuts to like the naked white woman in her in in her boudoir putting makeup on her neck and the asian guy in a towel you know it's every every most brutal cliche that you could possibly imagine about about the ways and i just i can't even believe the movie was made did you end you up know? rewatching this last night? I watched it last night. It is ridiculous. <laughs> <Okay>. You have <laughs> you told to me you it. were going to. Plus, Sean Connery's in it, and Sean Connery is in one other like terrible anti-Asian um, James Bond movie that's also yeah. insane. If, and he's like redoing the role in his in his sixties. It was just a giant mess. But but that was setting the tone for something that was happening at that time. Yeah, and so that's like ten years or so after Vincent Chin. It's around the same time that Leo Iacocca is offering that line about Japanese imports. Um, but even in, in the build-up to the attack on Vincent Chin, there are bumper stickers in Detroit that's saying Datsun, Toyota, Honda, Pearl Harbor, that sense of a kind of rhetorical violence that leads to a kind of physical violence was very much there in the culture. And yet even after that attack in the public of their attack. Ten years later, the culture has not learned from that rhetoric. It seems to be in the danger of that rhetoric, as the movie seems to represent. You know, I am so, like, it's ridiculous, you have to see it, is a sentence that prefaces so much of my viewing, um, as Peter knows. Um, I think that sort of my memories of the depictions of Asians from around this time are The Karate Kid and um, Short Round from Indiana Jones, um, who was also sort of like, right, this he was so smart and charming, but also like mildly threatening, um, able to slip into all of these different scenes, uh, like very do you, I mean, I think I'm, I'm younger than you all. And so like, I think I was, I mean, I must've been watching these things as a little kid. And I remember being so delighted. My brother and I were so into short round. 
Um, and so happy he was there. And now, like, looking back, I, of course, can't even watch these movies without feeling nauseated. Um, and, like, this horror at my own enjoyment, like, my desperation for representation was that I was so delighted by, like, literally everything except for Temple of Doom. Right, but that desperation for representation is worth thinking about. We might be horrified about it in retrospect. Um, but retrospect is always twenty twenty in those ways, right? It reminds me a little bit of the way I write about... Um, the Charlie Chan movies in an earlier section of the fortunes. Yeah. And, you know, Charlie Chan at that point is played by a Swedish actor called Warner Oland in Yellowface. And yet um, that character was beloved in China at that time because I think, A, there's a, there's a hunger for that representation and because the idea that he is the great detective who solves the crime and catches occasionally at least the white criminals um, made the character important, separate to who was representing the character, I think, to some of those viewers at least. So our perceptions of um, what's beneficial or what's not beneficial do feel as though they're very much shaped by the times we live through and our desperation for representation in our youths, I think, makes perfect sense to me, Suki. <laughs> I'm glad. I appreciate being retroactively forgiven for this extremely <laughs> bad day. Well, you know, one of the things <laughs> we might think about is um, how will, you know, I think about this as a father, I suppose, in some ways, but I also think about how will generations in the future judge us, right? So we look back on the past and we can see these flaws. Um, but in all probability, 20, 30, 50 years from now, those who come after us will look back on our moment and not see it as particularly enlightened either. Yeah, I'm sure that that's true. So when you thought about, when you decided to write, The Fortunes has such an amazing structure, right? And it takes on this topic that can be articulated in an academic way, but it doesn't feel at all like an academic book. It's so, it's such a deeply human book that crosses so many spaces. It has so much scope. And yet it's also got these like really fine details. Why did you decide to write about Vincent Chin? I can imagine so many people like reading about that incident, just running for the hills, um, afraid to touch something that is such a tender incident. Yeah, it was the last section of the book that I wrote. It, it, it comes third in the book in, in its current formulation. Um, but I think by that point, I had become very interested in various figures who sort of represented uh, Chinese or Chinese-Americans um, and were aware of their representative role in some ways and felt the burden of it. Obviously, that's true for Anna Mae Wong, the first Chinese-American movie star. Um, and I realized later, you know, not only that Vincent felt as though he was part of that progression, I think, in some ways, um, you know, the iconic status of the case felt very important in those regards, but that also in a broader way, and maybe this is that that personal or fictionalized element, the emotional element for me, is that um, as a writer, but also as a person, I have certainly felt moments when I struggled with my role representing other people who look like me, even though, you know, as somebody who's half Chinese, I feel like I am, you know, uh, a, a not very adept representative of that culture, even though I'm seen that way. So we're always struggling with that space between how a larger culture sees us and the truth of who we are, I think, in some ways. And I felt like all those characters were doing that. So there was something of my own um, anxieties being channeled, channeled into those spaces, I think. It's really, um, I don't know, I just revisiting it for this episode, I just was reminded of how much I admired um, its scope. And we mentioned Anna Mae Wong. And so there's a section of the book that's about Anna Mae Wong, who, of course, you know, lost 
film roles to white actresses, um, even when those roles were Asian. I guess it's The Good Earth specifically that I'm thinking of. And then there's um, like the the character in the first section who's mixed race. Um, and then at the end, it there's a section that um, kind of foreshadows in some ways a lie someone told you about yourself. Um, and you've mentioned a couple times, um, you know, as a father. And when Whitney and I were were um, thinking about inviting you on this episode before Atlanta happened, the original episode title, we come up with these pithy things, was Rehabbing the Dad. Wow. Okay. That sounds like a large burden to be dealing with. There. I think, and and um, I think you know, Elias, someone told you about yourself is about fatherhood, and I, I think it's fair to say it's an invitation to reconsider how we think about fatherhood and and masculinity in general. We've been talking about toxic masculinity and stuff, and the father narrator of this book is um, like the emotional terrain is so again so vast and so human, and, and um, it's offers this alternative, it seems like, when old models of masculinity seem obviously problematic, you know, again, going back to the shooter in Atlanta, blaming others for um, his problems. What what needs to happen for us to get away from this model of masculinity? How does this get us to a lie? Well, you know, it's tricky, isn't it? It's um, and, and a lie is a slim, and I hope in some ways, modest book, although it does sort of speak personally to some of the ways that I think about these questions. Um, you know, it's a book about parenthood. It's also a book that touches on abortion. So I was very conscious as a male writer about writing into what are thought of often as women's issues and not to speak for women, but maybe to stand with in some ways as some of the things I was thinking in, into. Um, and the character in the book especially ends up for a while working as an escort at a at a, an abortion clinic, I think, working through some of the things he's felt after he and his wife have gone through an abortion. Um, one of the things he grapples with, and I suppose one of the things I think about, um, you know, while we talk about maybe a a more positive vision in the future of masculinity, um, he's grappling with older models, but in some ways also grappling with older models that from time to time I think there's, there's maybe some value in those. I, I I'm thinking about him grappling with a kind of chivalric model. You know, there's a part of the time when I hear people on the right talk about traditional values, and I'm like, well, there are traditional values that I was brought up with that include uh, ideas that if you're a man, you don't strike a woman. To be to do that is to not to be less than a man. I think in some ways, and those are very patronizing. I think in many ways, and sort of problematic in some senses as well. Um, but if we were to revert to old-fashioned values, maybe some of those would be useful to bear in mind as well. Um, and he's struggling, I think, with some of those spaces, but I think also struggling with the instinct to um, to fix things, the instinct to defend things, the instinct to ultimately to violence, I think, in various ways. And ultimately, the character has to sort of step away from that role because he can see that instinct sort of asserting itself. Um, you know, so when I think about some ideas of masculinity at the moment, I, maybe just because we're in this particular moment, I can't help thinking about... Um, about gun culture and how we might choose to redefine that culture, which feels like a culture of fear. To own a gun is to be afraid. To buy a gun is to be afraid. To carry a large gun is to be afraid. Maybe we should think about owning a gun as the equivalent of uh, middle-aged balding men jumping into, you know, soft-top Miatas. That it's a feeling or a gesture of weakness. Um, and maybe the culture needs to re-understand what it is to be strong, I suppose, not just for a man, but for a woman as well. So a lie someone told you about yourself came out earlier this year, and it touches so deeply on some of the things that we're talking about. I wonder if you would read a little bit uh, for us from that book. Uh, sure, yeah. So the um, 
as I mentioned before, the couple involved um, their first pregnancy, um, they get a very negative prenatal test result and choose to have an abortion. Uh, but then afterwards, in a second pregnancy, have a child, uh, but midway through the book, but begin to have some concerns about the child, um, some of his physical development especially. And so this is a passage where they, um, the father is taking the child to physical therapy, to PT. The first time to PT, the boy asked, Daddy, where are we going? A really cool gym, he called it. Just for kids, to exercise, it's going to be some fun. And in fact, this last part is not a lie. The boy loves these sessions, has a blast on the swings and the tramps. He's cooperative and attentive with the staff. The father watches, hovering, shouting encouragement, calling the boy buddy. boy, buddy, like any regular dad, like it's sports, though in fact the one time he signed the boy up for a class at the local Y, he stood by, teeth clenched, tight with worry. Now he's a PT dad. Their only previous attaboys were during potty training as poop coach and poop cheerleader. PT is really not as bad as all that. He almost forgets the sinking feeling all the way there. It's not so bad. There's nothing to complain about compared to some he sees in the waiting room. When the therapist asks, he's happy to say that no, the boy isn't fussy about his food or the clothes he wears or being hugged. More bullets dodged. But at the end, when she's writing down exercises for them to do at home, cross-crawl, bridges, crab walks, superman, wheelbarrow, dead bug, more games we can play, he tells his son. She adds, almost casually, they should consider occupational therapy, sensory integration therapy, audio, auditory integration therapy. He might also look into orthotics if his insurance will pay. She shows the way the boy's ankle ligaments bow outwards, and the father nods and says, sure, and how long does she think the boy will need them? And she says, probably for the rest of his life. And he feels himself die a little in that instant, over orthotics, remembering the boy's first swaying steps, legs akimbo, arms overhead, tiny fists curled around their fingers, dangling like a puppet. He looks at his son and smiles brokenheartedly and says, OK, buddy, are you ready to go? Roger, Roger, he says in the robot voice of a battle droid. One day, the father thinks as they drive home, I'll be dead, and my son will still be wearing orthotics and thinking of all the lies his father told him. Thank you very much. I am the father of two boys, um, so the anxiety about children being healthy and wanting to take care of them is very familiar to me. But what I found interesting about your book is when I was thinking about, well, how many American literature is not filled with books about fathers thinking about how to take care of their children. <laughs> this is probably a good way of thinking about masculinity. Mostly, it's filled with fathers not paying any attention to their children at all, you know, or doing things that are directly bad to their children and the children telling the story. So I think of like Jeffrey Wolf's The Duke of Deception or every novel that Richard Russo's ever written or... Sylvia Plath or Pat Conroy's Great Santini. I mean, so you're working in a totally different direction. Is that deliberate? Is that just how the book came out? Were you thinking about this other tradition when you were writing? How did that go? There is a long tradition of villainous fathers on the page. And, and if not villainous actively, then absent. So the, the, the gap they leave behind is, I think, very palpable in various ways. Um, although when I think about books about fatherhood, the one that always first comes to my mind, partly because um, the father in my book is also a writer, is The Shining, which is a particularly negative vision. I think <laughs> yeah. fatherhood, I think we'll put that right in there with those other ones. <laughs> but, right, yeah. Um, and, you know, we might. there are some more positive ones which we might talk about as we go forward. But I think um, when I think of a number of those books that you mentioned, Whitney, um, 
they also feel like they speak to something generational, a vision of fatherhood that feels um, maybe from the middle of the 20th century in some ways, right? And I, and I associate my own experience as a child of fatherhood as being associated with those kind of spaces as well. Um, you know, I, my father was a good father in many ways, but not a very expressive father, I suppose, in many ways as well, which is maybe true of, of men of that generation. And I, I began to think about this a little bit because I feel no... Um, hesitation or compunction it's totally natural to tell my son I love him he sort of goes yeah of course you do uh, but it, it feels as though it comes very easily to me even though I think um, for previous generations of fathers and men it might have been harder to say those words I, I, I realized at some point that uh, for my father and maybe that generation the way love is expressed between father and son is not through the word love, but through the word pride. I feel pride in you. Um, and, you know, that's an analog, I think, in some ways. We all, as parents, feel that from time to time. But it also feels like a slightly problematic one as well. It feels contingent, does pride. You know, in the book itself, um, only uses the word pride once, uh, but uses the word shame, the antithesis of pride, over and over again. It's where the title comes from. And the Nin's line is that shame is a lie somebody's told you about yourself. Um, and I think that feels like a, a toxic space to be in, this desire to always be proving something to fathers. Um, we, my wife and I were just watching, um, I can't remember what movie or show it was, maybe it was a rerun of Lost, which we've been binging lately, um, in which somebody says to somebody else, uh, your father would want you to know how much he loved you. And it always feels like it's this belated statement, sort of beyond the grave in some ways, and also as though it will in itself be healing. Um, and maybe it is in some ways, but only because it's not been said during life, I guess. And it would feel like maybe we can begin to um, redress that space more as the generations go on. Yeah, I think that one of the things about the book for me is how it feels like the men, I mean, I think I as, say, as I say this, I realize how fortunate I am. It feels like the men I know who are fathers because, I mean, it's generational and it's also so, like, it's um, how many depictions of there are who are of men who are interested in kindness in a really active way. I was thinking Speaking also- Speaking of old fashioned values, right? Let's hold that one up, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think I was also thinking about, I mean, that is connected to stereotypes of Asian parents, um, right? I remember when my book came out, I was surprised that I got a number of notes from specifically um, Sri Lankan Americans or Sri Lankans in the diaspora who were sort of like, um, thank you for putting nice parents in your book. Um, like, I don't know when I've seen nice parents depicted and I was like, I hadn't really done it on purpose. I just had done it. And they were so astonished because they had seen all of these depictions of like the sort of very rigid Asian parent. Right. And, you know, we know that, um, and I think this is true, for instance, in the anime Wong sections of the fortunes, that there are Asian pa parents who are very much bought into a patriarchal notion, right? So we can feel something of that um, authoritarian, uh, traditional family vision that played out in some of those spaces. Um, but it may also be inflected, I think, to some degree by... Um, a kind of master narrative of um, immigration where we can feel like in a generational um, uh, tension between a, an earlier and a, and a later generation, I think, in certain ways as well. But it's always important, I think, to cut against those, um, what become essentially like stereotypes of those relationships. Yeah, and I think even Biden, for all that he's not my fave um, for a variety of reasons, right, it was so interesting to watch the ways that people have talked about, right, there's like that image of him hugging Hunter Biden and it, the right sort of used that image and was sort of like, what kind of man does this? And I was like, and, and so many people on the left responded rightly, I thought, you know, 
I mean, like, there's nothing wrong with hugging your son if you're just because there's there's nothing problematic here. And there was this sort of emasculating um, rhetoric going around, which was so wild. It reminds me that I think the sometimes the ways we think about fathers in the culture are shaped by um, presidential figures. Right. So fatherhood, um, you know, is something that we think about with lots of presidents over time. Um, you know, the last couple, of course, for sure. But, you know, I think about maybe a slightly more positive book about fatherhood, although it's a dark one too, but it's one in which love, I think, is expressed. I think about George Saunders's Lincoln and the Bardo as being one of those spaces where yeah, we think a little bit a into that, example. right? And that callback to Lincoln uh, also makes us think about fathers as fathers of the nation, right? So we're often talking about founding fathers and pilgrim fathers. So we're a, a father-haunted um, uh, nation, I think, in some ways as well. I, you know, the, the fixation on fathers in the culture and, you know, it, it also happens because it is possible for a father to be a good influence. I mean, that's the thing that I thought was good about your book. My, I had a very close relationship with my grandfather. I, I duck hunted with him all the time. We, you know, I own guns, you know, but, you know, he was a very gentle guy and a painter and sweet and could express himself and read souls and Nietzsche and, you know, was a, was a guy, just a guy, you know, lived in the Midwest, liked to play golf, you know, but, had a human side to him and could be very caring, but it was easier for him with me than it was with his sons. And I do think that sometimes it's the direct relationship with the son that's difficult. Yeah, I think there's something to be said for that. And maybe even just some of the ways, you know, I I noticed when we had my son and he was a baby, my parents uh, came to stay for a a few weeks to hang out. And in the entirety of the two-week visit, my father did not hold his grandson once, Um, which felt sad for him, actually, but also made me think, huh, what does it say about my relationship with him? When did he first hold me when I was a baby in some way? Something I would not have... uh, And it wasn't, you know, a kind of like, I don't want anything to do with that baby, but just a kind of... um, I think a kind of sense of, oh, I'll drop him or break him, right? Some kind of masculine sense of clumsiness that had been sort of bred into him in some ways. And I think it was also um, hard for him to negotiate too. That's funny. That makes me think of Laurie Moore's Terrific Mother, which is a story that begins with a woman dropping a baby she's been given to hold. We did that. We dropped to one of ours. <laughs> and we feel such great incompetence, right? I think that maybe that's the thing. Parenthood is fundamentally a journey through our own incompetence. And men don't like to be seen to be incompetent, I think, especially. <laughs> Nobody does. But men, you know, again, maybe this is thing about pride is creeping into that space as well. We, there's a vulnerability to that um, that uh, we, we can't somehow face up to. I never thought of that. I think that's a pretty good one. Maybe that's a good place to end. <laughs> Peter, we really appreciate you coming on the show. And listeners, please don't forget to take a look at his new novel, A Lie Someone Told You About Yourself. Thanks so much, you guys. I really appreciate the conversation. Thanks so much for coming. That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast on Literary Hub. Our show's producer is Andrea Tudhope. Our theme music is by Travis Workman. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Facebook at FNF Pod, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. 
In each of these spots, you'll find links to our LitHub Radio show notes, including some of the readings we mentioned in this episode. You can also find video versions of our episodes on LitHub's virtual book channel and on our YouTube channel. Our new website with our full video and audio archive and resources for educators is coming soon. Until next time, mask up and stay safe.